So um, I'd like to make an interesting observation about human behavior, and it's it's not unique. I'm sure you've seen this, but it's what I would call the the better than syndrome. You see, we'll find something that we really like, uh, or someone we really like, and we start to identify with it. We start to proclaim its virtue and its goodness, um, and start to compare it sometimes in the detriment to other things that other people like, right? And we identify with it so much that we kind of use it to promote ourselves over others. So it may be in the area of sports. I'm a Vikings fan, and they're 4-0, and the Packers aren't. Therefore, I'm better than you, right? Or it might be in the area of music. We like rock better than country. Uh, maybe it's, I like Bruno Mars better than Taylor Swift. My daughters are laughing at me. Shake it off. <laughs> I play on that one. Maybe it's the products that we, you know, we buy. Maybe it's, I like my Macintosh better than my P, than PC. You know, maybe it's, uh, Chevy's better than Ford. Maybe Android's better than iPhone. In politics, Trump is better than well. Clinton's worse than Trump. Let's put it that way. That's the argument, isn't it? And we even do this in Christian circles, right? We have our favorites. We have our our preferences. So my translation is better than your translation of the Bible. We have it, you know, in the areas of of worship forms. So hymns are better than praise courses or, or contemporary music or authors. You know, I like Jerry Jenkins better than Max Lucado or preachers and teachers, right? We do that quite often. MacArthur might be better than Swindoll. Francis Chan better than Tim Keller. John Piper better than Charles Stanley. And J. Vernon McGee is better than them all because he preached through the Bible in five years, my beloved. But that's the thing, right? We find a teacher, leader, or what have you, a preacher, and we connect with them. They are just articulating God's word just right. They seem to have lightning in a bottle. And we are sure that they have a direct line to God. And they become our hero, and they start to become the focus, them and their personality, their way of doing things. And it starts to get to a point where it becomes divisive and diminishes what Jesus might be doing in others, and perhaps to the point where that personality is diminishing Jesus himself. And this is what's going on in our study in 1 Corinthians today. If you have your Bibles there, you might want to crack it open to the first chapter of Corinthians, of 1 Corinthians, I should say. But this is the challenge that this church faced, and perhaps something that we get caught into in our as far as kind of wrapped up in our, our own culture. But Paul has to confront this wrong focus and point them to true wisdom, a true wisdom that will seem foolish to our world. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word today. Indeed, Lord, as we've sung today, we say not to us, but to your name be the glory. 
You are the God who came and put on flesh Jesus. You lived this life. You paid a penalty that we could not pay and conquered a foe that we could not conquer in death. And now you are seated at the God, at God the Father's right hand. And so may you be exalted in this message. And may you, Lord, send forth your word in us. Help us to hear what you have to say. And Lord, help us to respond in kind. That you be the center of all that we say, do, and who we are. That your body may be one. And Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen. So we started our series last week in the study of 1 Corinthians. And we called it Grace in the Mess. And that's what the Corinthian church is. It really is. God's, they've received God's grace, but there's a lot of mess going on there. We found out they're a very gifted church. God has gifted them spiritually in, in many ways, but there are many problems. And one of the major problems is they have put a major emphasis on their gifting rather than the giver. And Paul, who is their founding pastor, who's been away for a while from them, is addressing these matters. But he started out this letter, these first nine verses, by reminding them that everything they have is from Jesus Christ himself. If you look through verses 1 through 9, um, Jesus Christ is mentioned nine times within those verses. Everything they have, even Paul's apostleship, they're being set apart, the grace and peace they've received, their gifting, and their gifting to be used under the right end, that is, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God will faithfully bring this to completion, their faith, and they will be presented blameless. And it's from this vantage point that Paul starts addressing this first issue, this first matter of better than, if you will. So we're going to pick it up at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, that, there, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, another, I follow Christ. Allegiance to human personalities divides God's people. Allegiance to human personalities divides God's people. In verse 11, Paul says, I received this report from Chloe's people, Chloe's household. What we know about Chloe is she was probably a businesswoman in the Ephesus and part of the church of Ephesus, probably a widow, because um, usually if there's a man in the house, then it's usually under his name. But this is a woman, and she seems to have business dealings with those in Corinth. And so going back and forth between the church in Corinth and church in Ephesus, some of her people said, hey, have you heard about what's going on in the church of Corinth? They are having conflict, division in that church, because people are lining up because of allegiances to their favorite leader, their favorite teacher, their favorite pastor. And Paul was one of them. And the arguments might go like this. Well, I am of Paul. Literally, that's how the scripture reads. I am of Paul. Because he was a, a Pharisee. He was well-trained in the word of God. And he had this radical transformation in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus reached down and apprehended him, turned
turned him around and made him his chosen apostle. He was sent by Jesus. And by the way, he founded our church. Why would I not want to follow Paul? But I follow Apollos. And the scripture tells us, what you know of him in Acts chapter uh, 18, verse 24, is that he was, he was uh, a learned man. He was thoroughly uh, knowledgeable in the scriptures. And he basically got uh, kind of updated by Aquila and Priscilla as to the, his, the lack of things he knew as, as far as his faith in Jesus Christ. But when he got that right, they sent him to they sent him to Greece. And it says in, chapter, in verse 27 that he helped those who believe. In fact, he's refuting the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Most likely, he was the most gifted rhetorician that had come to, to the church in, um, in, in Corinth. He was the most gifted speaker, probably the best trained and they were drawn to him because of his wisdom. It was how he presented himself. He was a great speaker. Others said, I am of Cephas. If you don't know who Cephas is, it's actually Peter. That's the Aramaic version of Peter, which means the rock. He was one of the original 12 that followed Jesus, was with him day in, day out. He was there when Jesus was crucified. He was there when Jesus was risen from the dead. And Jesus used him to start the early church. Why wouldn't I want to follow Cephas? Now, there's a question of whether he came and visited Corinth or not. And, and the jury's still out, but there's a possibility his name is mentioned four times in the scripture. Here, and then you will see him again in, in chapter 3, verse 22, as far as teachers that are influential to, um, to, the, to the church there in Corinth. Also in chapter 9, Paul's going to question, don't I have a right to have a, a believing wife just as, as Cephas does? And in chapter 15, it talks about how Peter was a, a witness of, of Jesus' uh, resurrection. If, they, if Peter had not visited, at least they were very familiar with his ministry. And last of all, they list, of someone says, I am of Christ. And of course, this is probably the best answer. But it's ridiculous in this list of men in the Corinthian church who are giving their allegiance to earthly messengers. Paul will ask in verse 13, is Christ divided? Is this church divided? That's how far things had gone sideways in this church. The silly thing about the Corinthians, that they were in conflict with one another over their preferences, but these leaders were not in competition with each other. They didn't see themselves as in competition with each other, they, they were promoting the same gospel, the same message, the same Lord. In fact, this is what uh, Paul will say a little bit later about Apollos, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you believe, as the Lord has assigned to each a task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it to grow. Look, we're just servants of the Lord. Quit comparing. We're going the same direction. We're not in competition. And Paul, in verse 10, reminds them, first of all, that they're brothers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. There shouldn't be division amongst brothers. Psalm 133 starts out saying, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. 
And he reminds them and he appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who they owe their ultimate allegiance to. The one who made them brothers. And his appeal is that they, that you all agree with one another in what you say. And is they're saying the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is not groupthink. It is unity within the diversity. They are all one in Christ. That phrase that you be united in mind literally means that you be knit together. The thought of a broken bone that has been shattered, that has been set now and coming back together. There had been a shattering of, of uh, relationships there. And so Paul saying we need to be knit together. You know, here at Berean, we are coming from a few different backgrounds. We're eclectic enough, an eclectic group enough of people that we're going to have some different preferences, right? Some different life experiences and some different opinions. Some different opinions even on how we read the Scripture. This is God's Word. We're not debating that. But we may have some differences on, on how we understand things. And it is important for us to be biblical. It's important for us to inter let Scripture interpret Scripture. But in things that are secondary issues, we need to be humble before each other. We need to be humble. And remember that we are all one in Christ. So, you know, I may believe Jesus is going to come back in this manner. You may believe Jesus is going to come back in this manner. But we both believe the same thing. And I'll tell you what, I'm happy to be wrong. When Jesus comes back. I just know he's coming back. But getting back to the issue which divided the preferences of these leaders for the Corinthians. I suspect again the issue was that of human wisdom. As we'll see that in verse 17. But basically, you know, in, in Greek uh, Roman times here, trained rhetoricians, people we called sophists, or people who were into wisdom, would make their appeal. They, I mean, they were itinerant preachers, basically, in the marketplace. And they would make their appeal through eloquent speech and human understanding. And this was really popular. And you could actually make a living at this. You could kind of develop a group of disciples who'd, who'd sponsor you and, and take care of you. And, you know, they'd be your disciples. And it's very likely that, that Apollos kind of spoke in this manner, not that he was looking to make disciples, but he was, he was trained in this way. He was from Alexandria, which is a place where there was a huge library and contained a lot of Greek culture there. So this appealed to the Corinthians and in their own heads, and now they had their own Christianized brand of wisdom. They could take this to the marketplace. Say, hey, I've got something to share with you, something new. But they would also use it to hold over each other's heads in believing whose leader they were following was the most wise. Now, how could something like this happen at, at Brian? I don't know. But here's the thing, right? You can go on the Internet right now and get exposure to a number of really gifted pastors and preachers, right? I mean, you can go out there. And oftentimes, we can compare. You know what? Why doesn't Pastor Nathan preach like John Piper? Why doesn't, you know, 
we, we, we even consider, you know, comparing to what's there out on the, out on the internet. But here's the thing. We find someone, we, we like them, we're excited about them, and we start to compare to the point where we think that we really need to hear from God, we need to listen to X. We need to listen to this guy. And, you know, we limit how the Lord may be wanting to speak to us. Okay, verse 13. This is Paul's continuation of this thought. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Gaius, except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember that if I baptized anyone else. This is a great moment. Paul's having a senior moment in scripture. He said, yeah, there's only, you know, only Crispus and Gaius. Oh yeah, Stephanus, yeah. And he'd already written it in ink. He had to say, oh yeah, yeah. So, love the humanity there. Verse 17 though. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Faith in human personalities diminishes God's proclamation. He starts out with three rhetorical questions here in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of the Paul, in the name of Paul? All answers rhetorically, no. Except the first one, is Christ divided? Practicality, the answer was yes. Christ is being divided in the body here. And this ought not be. Because Jesus was the one who died for you to make you his own. Not Paul. It is in Jesus you are baptized when you identify with his death going under the water and his resurrection being brought up. That's who you're baptized in the name of. Not me. By the way, if you have put your faith in Christ and you do want to take that step of baptism, I encourage you to, to sign up for that on the 20th of November. But Paul is saying, look, you weren't baptized in my name. And the problem was the people were kind of aligning themselves with the, the guy who baptized them. Again, saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And Paul's going, look, there is only one Savior, and I'm not him. He says, in fact, in verse 14, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Isn't that a weird thing for a pastor to say? I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. He says that not because he's anti-baptism. He's saying that because we got this wrong, folks. Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one in who you should identify. Again, this is kind of extreme error, but you know how could that happen here at Berean? It happens when we don't keep Jesus in the center. It happens when we don't keep Jesus in the center. And we can elevate the gifted, the eloquent, the charismatic, to the status that is, is unhealthy. 
where it becomes idolatry. And again, none of these leaders were seeking this. None of these leaders were seeking to make much of themselves. They were seeking to make much of Jesus. But here's, here's one of our, our human fallibilities, right? It's easier for us to interact with what we can see. It's easier for us to follow a man that we can see than a God that we cannot. You know, think about if you read the, the story in Exodus where Moses leaves and is up on Mount Sinai for more than 40 days, right? And the people say, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. They'd certainly seen the hand of God all the way to getting there as he provided for them day in and day out. But they lost sight of Moses and said, well, Aaron, we don't know what happened to him, so make us gods that we can worship. Make us something that we can see. That's even why Israel asked for a king. Because they were tired of following a God they could not see. They wanted a visible man that they could see. That's where human weakness gets in the way of faith. But again, Paul is not wanting to feed this error, and he makes his, his call plain. His, he needs to be proclaiming the true Savior, the, the true center. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's where Paul is trying to point to the difference between human power and human wisdom, and God's power and God's wisdom. Human power and wisdom is built on eloquence, on logic, on human understanding. God's power is built on the work of Jesus Christ and the power of God. And Paul knows that he has this call. In fact, he introduces himself in the, in the, in the, in the uh, letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 1. says, Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I'm set apart for that. Paul was well-educated. Paul did know the scriptures. Paul was an effective speaker to both Jews and, and Gentiles. But he didn't lean on his ability to, to preach on rhetoric. He leaned upon the power of God. The place where he needed to show up. Christ and him crucified. So it says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Adherence to human wisdom is contrary to God's power. You see, the Corinthians were slipping into the trap of admiring and elevating human wisdom, even when it came to the gospel. And he seeks to show them the gospel, that Christ's crucifixion runs contrary to human wisdom. It is, as he says, Foolishness to those who are perishing. And it's God's intent to even humble human wisdom. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's quoting Isaiah 29, verse 14. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world 
through its wisdom, did not know him. See, in a world that valued human wisdom, Paul points out that it had the inability to know the ultimate. To know the living God who had invaded history. For all men seeking and searching, they could not perceive who God was and what he was doing. Continuing on in verse 21, But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The cross does make no sense as far as human wisdom because it appears weak. It appears weak. For the Jews, the thought of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms, contradiction to their expectations. You see, the Messiah comes in the power of God to punish the nations and the unfaithful, to kick the Gentiles out of Jerusalem, and to put the Jews on top with their Messiah and that they might be under their feet. And God would set up his kingdom here on this earth. And they were partly right. That is what the scriptures revealed. But they didn't realize that they had a holy God that needed to deal with their sin first and that wanted to be redemptive to the nations and that sin needed to be dealt with. That this one would come as a suffering servant. And as Isaiah 53 Five says that one who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was upon him brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Totally contrary message. Yes, indeed, Christ will come back as a conquering king. He comes first as a savior to come to come and deal with our sin, to come deal with our alienation against the Holy God, to make a way. The scripture says that God is love. And that's how God loved this sinful world that was in rebellion against him. And that offer still stands for anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. For the Greeks, to have this Crucified Messiah. Well, it was a, it was a weird, a weird thing because they saw the creation, the physical as flawed, as decayed, a shadow of how things really are. And only the spiritual, so to speak, counted and mattered. And they were partly right. They're right. We live in a decaying world that's falling apart. But they didn't understand that the resurrected Jesus Christ rose to redeem and is going to remake this broken world. As he says in Revelation chapter 21, 5, says, Behold, I make all things new. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. He's going to redeem this broken world. It's not just a spiritual realm. It is. It will be a physical realm that will be spiritually encompassed. I can't tell you I can explain it. I just know that's how the scripture affirms it. 
and our own worldview and how we view the message of the gospel. Our world says, God needs to prove himself to me through science. And then there is plenty of proof for God's existence. For what God has done, we always hold him suspect. We balk at the thought of sin. What? Who are you to call me sinful? We don't like the thought that we can't help ourselves. And the thought of submitting to another is odious to us. We relegate the cross to superstition and unhealthy guilt. We don't realize that we are accountable to our Creator. And I'm not saying there aren't rational answers for the cross, that we can't explain the gospel in logical terms. But it can't be perceived, it can't be apprehended by human wisdom. It has to be by the power of God. And if it's just used with human wisdom, then it's just foolishness. Verse 24, But to those to whom God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Again, the cross seems weak. God puts on flesh, is born to a peasant couple in upper Israel. He lives this life in relative obscurity for 30 years as a carpenter. For three and a half years, he has a ministry with some common, ordinary people. He seems to do some extraordinary things. But at the end of the day, he's put to death on a Roman cross. That is the power of God? The wisdom of God? Yes, it is. Because of who Jesus was. Remember, he is God in the flesh. And the wisdom of God and the power of God are all dependent upon God. Not on us. For Jesus to be totally dependent upon his Father his whole entire lifetime. To live a perfect life. For Jesus to be risen from the dead and conquer a foe we could not conquer. And it is his power through his Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see that he is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who has come to pay our penalty and to reconcile us to God. That has to happen by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen in our own understanding. And it is His transforming power that gives us life and changes our lives. I've quoted this verse many times, so I'm going to quote it again today. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. By placing my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm saying, Jesus, come live your life in me that I cannot live. That's the wisdom of God, the power of God. It's not dependent upon me. 
is dependent upon him. Our flesh doesn't like that. Our egos don't like it. But God gives grace to the humble. And we're going to talk about this more next week, about the power and the wisdom of God. But today, at the end of the day, we need to realize that our focus always has to be on our Messiah, on Jesus our Savior, rather than the messenger. The messenger may be gifted. The messenger may do a great job. But it's always pointing toward the Messiah. Let me pray for us, and then Bobby and you and your team close us in worship today. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and, and perhaps what we're talking about today has not affected us, but it can. Would you give us grace, Jesus, to make you the center of all that we are? And if there's anyone in this room today who's still wondering about what it means to follow you, I pray you'd be speaking to their hearts. That they would embrace your foolishness, my God. The God who is foolish enough to love his creation who is in rebellion against him. And powerful enough to give new life. What you have accomplished, Lord Jesus, in your death and the resurrection. So Lord, draw men and women to yourself, we pray. We're grateful for your goodness, and we will proclaim your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.